3: Hi, I'm Ethan Adelman, and this is Psychoactive, a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. Psychoactive is the show where we talk about all things drugs. But any views expressed here do not represent those of iHeartMedia, Protozoa Pictures, or their executives and employees. Indeed, as an inveterate contrarian, I can tell you they may not even represent my own. And nothing contained in this show should be used as medical advice or encouragement to use any type of drugs. Hello, psychoactive listeners. So today's episode is about microdosing, specifically of psychedelics, mostly LSD and psilocybin mushrooms. My guest is Sophia Korb. She is a psychotherapist working in Tucson, Arizona, primarily with people you know suffering from trauma. But my main reason for having her on today is that she has been the point person on a global survey of people who microdose, now numbering up to 18,000 people from around the world. And she's been working very closely on all of this with James Fadiman, who many regard as the godfather of microdosing. So I decided to have her on as our specialist. So Sophia, thank you ever so much for joining me on Psychoactive.
2: Thank you for having me.
3: So let me just start off with some of the, you know, the kind of basics about microdosing. I mean, the first one is- What is microdosing? How do you define microdosing?
2: So in general, in medicine, when we talk about microdosing, we're talking about a different response from a large dose of something to a small dose. So there could be microdosing of hormones or microdosing of another substance or microdosing of psychedelics. So with microdosing of psychedelics, we're not looking for a trip experience, but there is a medical effect even at a very low dose. Albert Hoffman, the inventor of LSD, had said that he thought there would be a medical benefit of taking like a quarter of a tab or a third of a tab. So he had taught that to his students. Um, and so, so people started doing these journals. They would take like a quarter tab every few days, and they would write in a journal about their experience. So that's what we thought microdosing would, was going to be initially. Then later, we found that it was much, much smaller doses that created a medical effect.
3: Mm Hmm. So Albert Hoffman kind of comes up with this idea, but it sounds a bit like he's talking more about what we might call, you know, not microdosing, but mini dosing, where people are actually experiencing the effect of the psychedelic, but at a, you know, not a full blown, uh, you know, macrodose level, but it's also something they're definitely aware of. I think most of our listeners will know Albert Hoffman, who sort of discovered or invented LSD back in the, the 1940s. Was he actually thinking about microdose at all in the way we think about it today?
2: I I think it's impossible for us to know. The best evidence that we have is from his students saying, like, he was really interested in this, but wasn't quite sure what what it would look like. And
3: was he himself doing it? Not that I know of. Uh I know that Uh.
2: Hoffman's students did, but I don't know if Hoffman did.
3: I see. So I've typically said that when it comes to LSD, people, or, or any other drug, that we're talking about one tenth or one twentieth what would be a mm-hmm. normal macro dose level. Is that basically
2: what you say? Yeah. At no visual differences, no visual hallucinations. We initially told people there won't be any perceptual difference, which is true in a way, but we mean that there won't be, you won't have hallucinations. You might perceive that something is different. And that was one part of confusion in the initial literature. We didn't mean like you couldn't tell that you took a microdose. We just meant that you wouldn't be seeing things. I see. What Jim often says is like the, the walls are breathing even a little, you've taken too much.
3: So the idea is microdose that you should be perceiving some difference, right? Well, th-
2: this is a, this is going to get into this conversation about placebo and double blind, right. right? So if what we call breaking the blind is when someone can tell what arm of a study that they're in. So Mm -hmm. in microdosing, it's very hard to create what's called an active placebo, which is where you'd effectively be able to fool people into thinking that they they weren't sure if they had taken LSD or psilocybin or not. So that's very, very hard because people know what it's like to take LSD or know what it's like to take psilocybin. And it's hard to create an active placebo, um, especially if you're using blotter paper, because nothing else fits on blotter paper that can cause like a very similar effect. So you might think something like, Uh, In the NYU studies, when they did uh, the psilocybin studies, they used 40 milligrams of Ritalin um, as -hmm. the control group. So that's an active control. And if people had were psychedelics naive and they had read something about psychedelics, they might expect to have some different thoughts, to have more energy. And they might expect the experience to last between four and six hours. That all fits in with Ritalin. But you can't get Ritalin on a paper, and it won't work for a microdose. So that's one of the major struggles in creating an effective double-blind experiment.
3: I see. And what if one were to design studies that did both a kind of total placebo, you know, with nothing, a sugar pill type effect, and with Mm -hmm. a low dose amphetamine, and then with, you know, different microdoses of varying levels? I mean, would that help to get at it? Or might that be a design of future studies?
2: I think that that could be a design in future studies. Uh, I think that when we're looking at things like depression, we need to think about what exactly a placebo effect for the treatment of depression would mean. How could someone have a placebo effect? Do they think that they're not as depressed as they are?
3: Oh, it gets tricky.
2: The, yeah, yeah, that becomes a little bit tricky, right? Because the perception of well-being is placebo effect and is also the opposite of depression.
3: Uh huh. Uh huh. So then
2: you get into like, okay, what what are we doing, and what is the what's the exact thing that we're trying to get at right now? Um, and uh-huh. if we're creating a sense of well-being in people, no matter how we're doing it, that's going to take away the, the their sense of depression.
3: So, with microdosing, right, it's not just about taking this lower dose, which I think is mm-hmm. I've often seen described as one tenth or one twentieth the kind of yeah. normal dose for a psychedelic. Yeah, so effect. that's what we
2: had. That's what we had normalized after this idea of like a third or a quarter. We realized that people were still like they were like I can't sleep at night if I take like a quarter of a tab. Um, so we reduced it. We said maybe try ten percent, maybe try twenty percent, and that seemed to still have medical effects for people, but not be so overwhelming.
3: Right. So if people have a, if a normal doses say on LSD going to be 100 micrograms or 150 mm-hmm. it would mean taking 10 or 15 or maybe less maybe as low as 5.
2: Right. right. And we've seen we've seen medical benefit as low as 2. And like I'm pretty skeptical. So I of course didn't think that people could effectively dose themselves at 2, but like <laughs> this woman's husband was a chemist and he did the dosing. So I trust that he was able to get 2 micrograms.
3: Yeah. And I guess some of it depends on tolerance. You know, watching your talk at Horizon, Sophia, one of the best laugh lines when you talked about, you know, well, the normal dose for microdose for many people with LSD might be, you know, five micrograms, 10 micrograms. But when Lady Amanda Fielding, you know, who was just recently yep. a guest on Psychoactive, you know, she said that for her, 100 micrograms was a microdose because her tolerance was so substantial with respect to yeah, LSD. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And did you get other people reporting that or is Lady Amanda sort of the far end of this?
2: No, I think that she's the far end. She's a great explorer. Um, and she yeah, she said that for her, 100 would have been a microdose, but I'm not sure anyone's using at that level right now. I don't really mm-hmm. know um, if people okay. are using in the way that she used to, which is to take LSD every 24 hours. Uh-huh.
3: Now, it's also not just the dose, right, but it's also the mm-hmm. frequency. And I've read about there's a kind of two types of protocols. I've I yep. It's the Fadiman protocol, and then there's the Stamets, the Paul Stamets, Stamets yep. protocol. Exactly. And so just explain more about that and your thoughts about the, about those two protocols. So,
2: I remember when I was creating this with Jim. So, we didn't really know, because you don't know what you don't know. So, we thought, okay, we think from MKUltra Ultra that lsd lasts in the system around 24 hours because you develop tolerance and it stops working if you take lsd every 24 hours so we thought okay let's give people like a day in between their doses to let that get out of their system and see what happens because you're you know we're not going from anything so that's what we suggested to people and then paul stamets i think his protocol was based on a different idea
3: Day in between? Because I thought it was more like twice a week or every third day.
2: Yeah, it was every third day. So, it was like Uh one day of effect, one day of just seeing how things turned out, and then the next day was dosing again. So, every third day.
3: Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. Right. So, that's the Fatiman protocol and the Stamets? I think what I was reading was something like th- three days a week and then off for the rest of the week or something like that. The idea okay, would be to yeah. so sort of stack them up and then um, and then let
2: people experience it. I know that for us, we were doing it based on this idea of tolerance and also an idea of learning. So if people mm-hmm. are having like a learned effect from microdosing, it might take some integration to be able to to learn whatever they're learning. Um, So we wanted to give them some amount of sober time. So we asked people in the Fatiman protocol to do this for a month right? So dose every third day or whatever felt right for them for about a month and report back their findings. So after that period, we asked people what they continued to do. How did they continue to microdose after the study period? And what we found was two major groups. One was people who dosed once a week, and one was people who dosed once a month. So almost no one continued at that initial level of, of twice a week or three times a week.
3: Now, Mm -hmm. just explain a little more about the survey, when did it take place and how many people and from what types of countries and what types of drugs and all of that? Yeah,
2: absolutely. All right. So when I started working for Jim, I was a grad student at the um, Institute of Transpersonal Psychology, and I have a strong background in math and statistics. And as you might imagine, people at the Institute of Transpersonal Psychology, that's a pretty unusual background. So Mm -hmm. um, I needed money as a grad student. So um, I had this professor, Jim Fadiman, who seemed cool enough. Um, And he said, oh, do you want a work study job doing math for my research group? And I said, sure. So I set out to try to prove all of this drug stuff was just placebo nonsense. Uh, So we first did some studies with like macrodosing, like, you know, he was giving talks at colleges and we were asking college students like what they did and what their motivations were. And then I got the microdose thing. So what was happening initially was someone was sending out these journals. They were mailing journals to people who were microdosing.
3: What do you, what do you mean by journals?
2: Oh, I mean, handwritten like notebooks.
3: You mean something for people to fill in. You mean the blank, blank notebooks. They were to blank write notebooks.
2: In. Yes. Bl- they were writing journal entries in, and my job was to digitize these handwritten journals. And so that is no way to run like an international study on drugs. So I was like, no, Jim, we're not doing this. So I set up a Google form and I use snowball recruiting. So snowball recruiting means that if you're Say doing a study of a population who's doing something illegal or who might not trust you, you have to establish trust with some members of the group first, and then they introduce you to other members of their group. So Jim Fadiman was well known within the psychedelics community; I was not. So we gave out this survey, and so I you know designed a survey or a couple surveys, put it on Google Forms, and then we handed the information out to people, and that, that way I didn't have to like type up people's handwritten journal entries. Um, Mm -hmm. And we could also get some hard facts. So we could do depression screenings. We could do anxiety screenings. We could get before and after snapshots. And as we had more questions about what was going on, we could survey the people who had filled out the study in the past. Like we could go back to them and ask them, oh, we also have this question, have you had a stroke? So then... (laughs) The next time I looked at it, we had hundreds of entries, and then very rapidly we had thousands of entries because people love to share about their psychedelic experiences. People love to share about what help what helps them.
3: Uh huh. Yeah, I'm just thinking about Arrowwid, right? The fantastic source where people go for information uh, about different types of psychedelics, and just has mm-hmm. well, I don't know h- tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of accounts now over the many years. Yes. So basically, with the people filling these journals, you're going back and forth with them, right, mm-hmm. about A their little experience bit, yeah. or
2: And they were contributing questions also. We wanted to have them be a really active part of this study because it's, you know, for them. So we were like, what do you want to know? Why are you trying microdosing? What, What are you trying to do? And so we could find out more information about what people who were doing this wanted to know. And that was really, really useful because we would find out things like, oh, even the people who say that they're not depressed, they're actually showing up as depressed on a depression inventory. Even people Mm who say, Oh, I'm doing this to be more productive, if I check in with them in a couple months, they've quit their job at a bank and Mm -hmm. I don't need to worry about them using psychedelics to be more productive for capitalism. Uh Like they've, you Uh know, they've resolved that in themselves in some way. So that was a really interesting, and some of the things that people wanted to study didn't pan out, of course. So we had like a whole group from Louisiana who wanted to know if microdosing would help them control their blood sugar better. And the mm-hmm. answer was no, it doesn't. <laughs> Not at mm-hmm. all. Uh,
3: Based it, upon what you were it, hearing from other people in the surveys.
2: No, we 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 did like a little study with them. So we had like this subgroup of people who were microdosing and they were taking their blood sugar um, and there was no effect of... I see. Yeah. I so see. we were able to do a little study and like eliminate that as a possibility, um, which is a really useful thing to do in terms of what we call preclinical research. This type of it's not a double-blind, but we can start to generate hypotheses about what clinical studies should look at.
3: So, so just put this in some time context. When did this mm-hmm. survey begin, and is it, did it come to an end? Is it still ongoing? It's and still how many ongoing.
2: <laughs> um, uh-huh. it's, I was just looking this up. So um, it's still ongoing because people find it really meaningful to fill in the responses. So when did you start? Two thousand and sixteen, maybe? Uh-huh.
3: And And how many people have participated?
2: Eighteen thousand. 18,000, wow. Something like 18,000, right? So it's also, there's different different tools, right? So there's like a, tell us about your experience in general. And then there's a daily check-in tool that some people are still using, even though we don't use that data for anything. They just want to like check in and let us know how they're doing. One of the things Mm -hmm. we know about psychedelic science is that psychedelics arouse the part of the brain that wants to communicate. People want to share about their experiences. That's probably why Arrowhead is so popular. So, like, I'm happy to listen to people's experiences, especially if it's on a Google form and I don't need to, like, individually listen to each person. I appreciate Mm -hmm. that. And we're able to build, like, AI to read these people's stories and see if there's just, like, can a computer program tell the difference between a mushroom psychedelics, a microdosing experience, and a LSD one? Right. Can the mm-hmm. artificial intelligence do that?
3: Now, can, are, is there some kind of macro data you have now? Like, for example, are the large majority microdosing psilocybin or microdosing LSD?
2: So the large majority of people that we studied are are doing one of those two things, either LSD or psilocybin, because we collected as much data as people wanted to contribute. So we have data about lots of like what we call the alphabetamines. So 2CI, 2CB, um, people who are microdosing DMT, those are not large samples, but they're the Mm -hmm. only samples that we have. So it's maybe not statistically significant to compare them to the LSD ones, but we can start to take a look and say, oh, this is starting to look pretty similar. Maybe there's this major difference. Maybe someone had like a a bad reaction. You know, we can start to Mm -hmm. get some information.
3: Is there any sort of significant third place after LSD and psilocybin in terms of what people are microdosing?
2: Some people are are microdosing mushrooms um, in combination. So like lion's mane, that kind of thing. Yeah. So there's a difference in our sample between people who are using psilocybin mushrooms and um, extracted psilocybin.
3: I see. Now so, I've, I've yeah. seen the phrase stacking, I guess, which is also associated somewhat with Paul Stamets, but where people yes. combine psilocybin with lion's mane mushrooms, which has a reputation in terms of, I guess, memory mm-hmm. or your cognitive abilities, as mm-hmm. or, for example, chocolate or cacao, which I think is mm-hmm. you know kind of connected with sort of indigenous traditions of, of psychedelic mm-hmm. taking in in the Americas, or with niacin, which I guess is also known as vitamin B three. So, yes. did you see a fair bit of that ha- popping up in your surveys?
2: We only in the end now that we start to see this like stacking effect. It makes the statistics much more complicated if people are doing lots of different substances. Like it makes it much harder on my end. That's fine. But in order to get to be able to know things for sure, we kind of need to separate variables out. So the problem with stacking is that it's hard to know what's having the effect. I can say pretty conclusively that the best uh, what we call nootropic, tro- like things that help people think better, is probably caffeine. It's going to be really mm-hmm. hard to beat caffeine. And when people think that they're microdosing and they're improving their cognition, and I went through this with a bunch of different people who wanted to study this, I gave them like little cognitive tests to take every day and they were so excited that they were getting better. But And they did get better, but they didn't get better because of the LSD, they got better because they were practicing.
3: Because they were what? Practicing. What do you like mean if Practicing. You
2: practi- because it's the cognitive task, so it'll be like, can you remember digits in sequence? So if you practice it over and over, of course, you get better.
3: But when it comes to stacking, then, if caffeine's a key one, it mm-hmm. seems like caffeine is so much a background drug that do people even remember to report it? Or is it just you exactly. know, so much a part of the lives of you know a majority of all the people in the world,
2: or at least in the in the survey? I think it's a really important thing for like the clinical research to be able to start to sort out. I'm also not sure what we're looking at in terms of the neurotropic effect and caffeine. Like if we're looking for stuff for people with dementia, I'm not sure that caffeine is that helpful. But if Mm -hmm. people are looking to enhance their work abilities, then of course, those are the people who are looking at things like modafinil and Adderall and caffeine.
3: Modafinil is another stimulant or has a stimulant-like effect without being an amphetamine?
2: Modafinil is a non-stimulant that's used uh, for ADHD. It's a cognitive enhancer. It shows a lot of promise for Alzheimer's and dementia. It is used off-label for antidepressant right now. We think perhaps because it's pro-cognitive. So when people are depressed, they don't think clearly. So it's possible that as they take modafinil, which was originally designed as a anti-narcolepsy drug, it was designed for fighter pilots to be able to not fall asleep while they were flying and to still make good and not aggressive decisions. So mm-hmm. it, it prevents people from sleeping without being a stimulant, because eventually if you take stimulants, people start to make foolish decisions. So mm-hmm. it's, it's used pretty extensively in geriatrics. And I know that it's being investigated for a number of things now that it's off patent.
3: Mm-hmm. So, yeah, now, modafinil
2: th- 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 is definitely part of those stacks.
3: Yeah. So it was basically long distance pilots, I think, in the U.S. Navy and yes, elsewhere. Exactly. Who, who yeah, were yeah. allowed to use amphetamine, uh, oral amphetamine, in low dose. And by and large, the Navy was finding that effective, that there were no accidents involving uh, pilots using amphetamine, whereas the number one cause of accidents, I think, was fatigue. And so the sorry, use of amphetamine for, with was amphetamines
2: amphetamines a positive. Or mo- or with
3: amphetamine, with amphetamine. Mm-hmm. But then I think as amphetamine became more and more controversial and the use of it, I think the Navy. Shifted. This is my understanding that they shifted to modafinil, which supposedly did not have any kind of a uplifting effect in the way that amphetamine can have. And basically, mm-hmm. it had the intended desire of keeping these long distance pilots from falling asleep. You know, you're in a plane mm-hmm. for 10, 12 hours and you're bored to tears. They needed to right. make sure things didn't happen there. Now, how about microdosing MDMA?
2: So what I understand is that from the initial, this this is why we excluded MDMA from the initial MDMA trials. So when you do a double blind study, you want to have an active placebo, like we talked about. So you want something that has the effect of the drug, but not the full effect. So it's really common to use a lower dose of the substance that you're studying. So in the MDMA research, they tried to use a low dose of MDMA as their control group. So what happened is that people had panic attacks, that uh, yeah. low doses of MDMA cause panic attacks without having a positive benefit. And so th- it's not used. Uh, and this was the- a microdose yeah. dose
3: of MDMA or a mini dose th- of MDMA? Uh,
2: you, we would have to check the NYU study, but I want to say it's something like 40 or 50 milligrams of MDMA caused panic attacks and that study. so that's a
3: mini dose yeah. that's not a microdose right I mean I want right. to understand why that would might have that effect when mm-hmm. you begin to have the in- impact of the MDMA coming on but it's kind of right. you know not quite there right uh-huh. so there's euphoric. really nothing yeah. really known about mini micro dosing of MDMA at this point
2: no, I don't know uh, because that we didn't include MDMA in our samples uh mm-hmm. Jim feels like it's not a traditional psychedelic so it's been pretty excluded yeah and what about
3: anything involving, I've seen some articles about microdosing of THC or cannabis. Uh, did, did that show up in your study at all?
2: People wrote about it all the time. It's really impossible to distinguish that from a background effect. So many people use cannabis, and cannabis is so complicated because there are so many uh, compounds inside of it, inside of all of these botanicals, that it would be really, really hard to distinguish what's going on there. I'm, I'm mm-hmm. excited about the cannabis research, but I, I don't know that much about it.
3: Hmm. So I'm guessing with your survey in 18,000, that the vast majority or that the substantial majority come from the U.S. and then you get Canada and Britain and Australia. But what other countries were popping up in interesting ways?
2: Oh, um, there's lots of countries and there's lots of people who don't want to disclose their country, but there's like Egypt and Bahrain and china and japan and there's lots of western europe of course russia was popping up in some places i'm sure ukraine also um and lots of people who didn't disclose and just said i'm using a vpn i'm in europe which is fine Mm -hmm. i don't want people to get in trouble for like using minor doses of of any substance
3: there wasn't a control group right that you had basically a survey
2: we actually did set up a control group so, I asked my grandparents for help because I looked <laughs> at the average age on these some yeah. of these studies. Um, and so, we're looking at people who are a little bit older. So, I was like, all right, can I just have a group of older people take some cognitive tests like once a week and compare them to the people who are microdosing? Um, so, I had my grandparents, friends, and their old, elder community do these like cognitive tests and mood tests uh, mm-hmm. and see what happened. And what we were able to find out, which... Of course, you never designed something this way, but filling out a mood survey once a day is a positive intervention. (laughs) It makes people feel better just because you're checking in about how your mood is. So we saw Mm a mood elevation effect just from the survey without any drug effect. Hmm. Then we saw on top of that, an improvement on mood for the people who are microdosing.
3: But are people writing in about their experiences not microdosing? There's no. where, where, what, what, so what are they comparing it to? There's what, what is the control? Or, or, no, no, I'm so we didn't control,
2: yeah, so we controlled the cognitive aspects, like we did a survey of the cognitive part, but no, we didn't get journal entries from people not microdosing.
3: What did you find in terms of, you asked people why they started microdosing? What did you tend to find about that?
2: So there's a bunch of different motivations, including people who wanted to do it for creative reasons, people who wanted to do it to get better at their job. So we had 65% people say they wanted to improve their physical or mental health. We had 25% people say that they wanted to enhance wellness. Below that, there's things like curiosity and creativity and treating their ADHD.
3: And so would you say that the large majority of people in the survey were people who we would define as basically fairly psychologically or mentally healthy, who are just trying to improve things, or people who are actually suffering from some significant impairment and are trying to fix it?
2: The vast majority of these surveys were people who... Um, were doing fine and wanted to improve their lives in some way. As this became more popular and we be- got more media attention, we got more survey responses from people who were desperate, who had really serious medical or psychological problems, and wanted to treat them. And of course, we included those people also, because they were also using microdosing to try to enhance their lives. So the initial population was very, very healthy. And we excluded, and this is important to know, we excluded people who have had bad psychedelic experiences in the past. So when people ask me about microdosing and say things like, oh, I had a bad acid trip, should I try microdosing? It's like, absolutely not. We don't have any data on people like you. Like if people are allergic to LSD, they're excluded from my sample. So I don't know until we do double blind experiments, we won't know how many people this is really helpful for because Our data is limited by the fact that we tried to exclude people who might come to harm.
3: But the initial question was, why are they doing it in the first place? And you're saying basically to improve well-being, to improve, you Mm -hmm. know, I don't know, effectiveness, whatever. I mean, was it also just things like I read about it in the newspapers or I saw media reports about it or friends doing it? Or did you ask how people heard about microdosing in the first place?
2: Yes, we did ask people how they heard about it. I I don't think that that many people try microdosing because they read about it in the paper. I'm not sure, but I think that people make changes to their lives because they, something, they want something to change. I'm not sure that just reading about LSD in the paper is enough to like go source LSD, figure out a way to get a very small dose into something, take it like on a regimented schedule that doesn't sound like something that people do if they're not super hmm. committed. Uh, I think that people would need to be committed in order to do it.
3: Did you ask people how they went about sourcing the material then? Because I mean, I mean, it's funny, you know, when I think about yeah. it, I mean, I, you know, I, I've, I've had experience, uh, you know, getting, for example, a friend who gave me a little container of uh, liquid mm-hmm. LSD, you know, and, I, and one drop is supposed to be 10 micrograms. And so just, mm-hmm. you know, for the hell of it, I did one of the drops an hour or so before I got in this uh, interview with you. In fact, I may have mistakenly done two drops, so we'll see if I have any more above, you know, subperceptual effect, right? Sure, but I mean, yeah. That, you, know, you, know, you have to be sort of connected in order to get that, and then when it comes to mushrooms, I mean, I don't know where people are getting, you know, uh, basically powdered psilocybin. And if you're doing mushrooms, you're talking about, you know, this dried plant product oftentimes. And how do you know about how much to even cut? You know, what what piece is mm-hmm. it? Is it a part of the stem or what do you take a part of the cap or this part? Of the, I mean, h- how do people learn that? Or did you give advice about that?
2: Yeah, these are really good questions. So because we assume that things like the government and the carceral state are reading our email, we did not provide any information about sourcing anything. What we did, and this is my standard response to people who wanna learn more about psychedelics, is Google psychedelics interest group and your city. So Psychedelics Interest Group San Francisco, Psychedelics Interest Group Tucson, whatever, go to those places, meet those people. If you're connected to the community, and then this is true about drug users in general, if you're connected to a community, you're much less likely to undergo harm. So those people are able to act in safe ways, they're able to source things, and then they're part of the community that can help them. I also know that in that psychedelic space, there are people who sell mushroom kits so this is very helpful for my, my study because people were able to be their own control. So they would do the survey, say, for 30 days as they were growing their mushrooms and then have a 30 days microdosing journey with the mm-hmm. mushrooms that they grew out of a kit. So I know that those things exist. I know that it's not illegal to buy spores in the United States. I know that it's not illegal to buy 1PLSD in Canada. Um, and I did not get involved in any sourcing until the very end of this, which is when Compass came on the...
3: The scene what is exactly is the thing that's legal in canada
2: oh, because there's no analog act in canada um so you, they have to ban each substance individually so lsd is illegal in canada and 1p lsd which is um lsd with a, another part added onto it is completely legal so you can get 1p lsd uh, and is in that canada.
3: distinguishable from normal lsd without the 1p um, it,
2: yeah, it's uh about so like one. I think it's 115 micrograms of 1P is the same as 100 micrograms of LSD. It's a little bit really. And this is basically
3: essentially legal in Canada. You can get it on the internet, or uh, I mean, people do people actually sell it in shops, or is it just an internet thing?
2: I don't know what kind of shop you would buy it in, but maybe it's just an internet thing. I know that um the researchers in Canada were able to source 1P LSD for their study, and at a very high level, meaning. Good manufacturing practices, which is the standard of substance that we use in human trials in the US and Canada and Europe, um, without a problem, whereas LSD would have been more of a problem for them to get permission from Health Canada.
3: Mm -hmm. Well, I guess we should just say for the benefit of psychoactive listeners, you know, the United States does have the Controlled Substances Act for many years, and it would be illegal to import even the 1P LSD from Canada, although I imagine a large number of people are doing so, and I hear remarkably few reports of anybody getting arrested for something like that.
2: I think that that's true, and I think it's really important to know that there are natural substances in our world that you can extract psychoactive materials from. So. I'm here in Tucson, Arizona, and San Pedro cactus is legal and sold at the Home Depot here. And you could extract DMT from that without that much work. Uh huh. And it's not illegal unless there's distribution.
3: We'll be talking more after we hear this ad. The
0: 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans, and yet,
1: if you dare.
3: So, supposing I had a bag of dried mushrooms, psilocybin mushrooms, in my freezer, how would I know how much to take for a microdose?
2: If you know how much to take for a dose, then you're in good shape to know how much you want for a microdose. So, if you know a dose is this much of the mushroom, then you want a tenth or a twentieth of that. The problem is for people who are psychedelics naïve, right, which is why it's important to connect them to these larger communities, because how are they going to know what's a good dose? But if Mm -hmm. they know what a good dose is, then they can take a twentieth of that.
3: I I mean, I have to tell you, I tried eyeballing it um, from my mushrooms, uh, Sophia, and I was unsuccessful. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, I just, I'm I'm going to be honest that
2: someone, yeah, someone gave me what was supposed to be a microdose of mushrooms um, in a chocolate, and I was tripping extremely hard. (laughs) That was not a microdose. And there was some sort of mistake in the labeling.
3: Yeah. Right. And I also know that, you know, one bag opposed to another, depending upon either, you know, how potent it is originally or else how long it's been hanging around, you know, they can vary by a factor of two or even five in terms of potency Mm -hmm. sometimes.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's hard to eyeball. I think it's better to start low and go slow, which is a general principle of drug use.
3: So, in your survey, can you say the large majority of people doing it, doing microdosing, were people who had already done macrodosing in their life or vice
2: versa? We didn't think to ask that question in the beginning. And then we went back and asked people that question. So, Mm -hmm. yes, a lot of people had macrodosed years and years before. So, like 30 years before. And then they tried Uh microdosing. And a Uh lot of people tried macrodosing during their project of microdosing, which confuses the data a little bit. But not everyone, not everyone who tried microdosing had macrodosed, and not everyone wants to. It's a large time commitment. could be a large emotional and psychological and spiritual commitment as well.
3: Mm -hmm. Now, I noticed in in just sort of prepping for this interview, Sophia, and reading about Mm -hmm. microdosing, there was one term I wasn't familiar with before that kept popping up, and it's flow state. Just explain what flow state is and why that kept popping up in discussions of microdosing.
2: So it only started popping up in after 2018, I think. So the idea of flow state is that when the task meets the situation exactly perfectly, you can get into this state where everything just sort of works. There's energized focus. There's full involvement. There's enjoyment in the process of the activity. It's characterized by complete absorption in what one does, and there's a resulting loss in one sense of space and time.
3: So a sense of being like in the zone, would that be a comparable phrase? Yeah, a compar- par- yeah exactly. Zone? Yeah. So when you're, when you're writing one night and all of a sudden everything's just flowing, or when you're playing an instrument or giving a talk and just the words are just coming in as you want yeah. them to, it's, it's being in yeah, that. I, I'm a uh-huh. therapist,
2: and I would say that when I, I'm really feeling connected with someone and like I... I just know what to say, and I know what question to ask, and there's not that effortful part of it, like there might be when I first meet someone. So it's like, oh, I just know them really well, and I just know what to say, and then mm-hmm. the session is over, and it didn't feel like either one of us did that much work, but it, things really improved. And so we started mm-hmm. seeing a lot of those reports and people who were microdosing for over two weeks. As people would microdose, they'd say, oh, I'm experiencing this um, more, or... The way I'm doing my job has changed quite a lot. I used to be like overly focused, and I would get con- like concerned about details. And now that I'm microdosing, I can see the bigger picture. I can really put my effort where it's needed.
3: Let's say some more about that. I mean, you say it in the work context. What other contexts? I and mean, were, were there people, artists who are experiencing this? Yeah. Writers experiencing yes. this? Uh, are, say yes. Therapists, fellow therapists experiencing this? I mean you know, how prevalent was this? And how how many different ways did it manifest?
2: Yes. So people are saying that it affected their relationships. They're able to see how they want to interact with people and take a step back in a different way. Um, Definitely, there were a bunch of artists who were like, oh, I can change how I'm doing my work. There were other therapists who wrote in. There's a lot of students in our survey, which is not uh, that surprising because it was a snowball study of people who are using drugs and if you get one student, they're likely to give the information to more students. And um, so that that flow state was mentioned by a bunch of other people. Um, do you want to hear about the other themes that we saw? Yeah, please. Okay. So the other two that we saw a lot of were first the, the cognitive experience of psychedelics use. So you might not expect that if someone's microdosing, they're going to have the same cognitive experience as someone who's macrodosing. So I would characterize the psychedelic uh, cognitive experience in two important ways. One that there's uh, there's altered associations. You see things from novel perspectives, and the other is that you're able to see hierarchy as holarchy. So people take apart their families, like in their minds, and think, "Oh, what would it mean if I were the dad? Right? How would my family be different?" And they're able to see things in a different way. So people, even people who are microdosing, were saying, "Oh, I'm looking at problems in different ways," and like. Curiosity is outweighing fear. Difficult problems are easier to start right now. I don't mind making a mess in order to find and examine solutions. So there's this like eagerness and curiosity that went along with the cognitive experience of microdosing. Hmm. The other theme that we consistently saw was about psychodynamics. So people having a history of trauma in their own families or in their own hearts, and they were able to go into that in a way that was controllable for them. So uh, what we don't want is people to have these like emotional outbursts and not be able to bring themselves back, right? But people who were microdosing were able to say, I can open it up a little bit at a time.
3: Now, in terms of the experiential effect, I mean, if people Mm -hmm. are typically doing this every third day, are they feeling Mm -hmm. the effect the day they take it, the day after, uh, two days later, or is there any pattern to this?
2: So that's a really important question. What we thought was that there's going to be like only a learning effect on the third day. So we thought, okay, the first day they're going to use the substance, the second day it's still going to be in their system. The third day is going to be, they're going to be clean. We'll just be able to see what they learned. Um, but we don't know that that's true. We don't know how fast it's eliminated by the system and we don't know how the learning exactly is going to work here. So what we saw is that over time there was, uh, there was more of an effect. So in the, the first week people are reporting effects that seem really improbable. It's possible that this is placebo. You know, we talk about placebo, different placebo effects, one of which might be people are taking charge of something that's bothering them in their life. So they start to feel better because they're doing something about it. So that's one placebo effect is like, okay, you're finally doing something. So that's maybe where some of the mood elevation, the first week of microdosing starts out with. And then after two or three weeks, we start to see a sort of less anxiety, we see less depression. but We also see an evening out of moods. So like less, lo- less low lows and also sometimes less high highs.
3: Now, do people just keep doing this, you know, for months and months and months or do most people kind of do it for a few weeks or a month or so and quit? And why would they do either way?
2: It's a really important question and we have done and we are continuing to do a lot of Worked on that topic because one of the problems of this type of survey research is that if people drop out of the study, we don't know why. So you can have really positive results because all the negative people dropped out of the study. So we followed up really extensively with people who lost touch with us I and mean, tried to find out what was going on. So, the, of people who microdose for, say, a month of, and then continue to microdose afterwards, there's these two groups the once a month people and the once a week people. My My basic summary is that the once a month people are having like headache syndromes, so they're having migraines, they're having cluster headaches, or they're having like Lyme disease or some medical problem that's able to be controlled with very low levels of microdosing. So they're microdosing once a month to prevent having these headache syndromes, and they're not interested in taking any more because that's the amount that they need to do to control their headaches. Then there's the once a week people who seem to be more on the depression and anxiety end of things, those are people who, w- who are using microdosing for motivation and for mood. Um, I think that that's a that's the large majority of people who continue to microdose after the first month. The people mm-hmm. who don't microdose, who don't like it, um, so there's a couple of groups. One is people who find it to be anxiety-provoking. So, when we look at people with post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, you can sort of classify people into two groups. One is the people who are sort of depressed and out of it, and the other is the group of people who are f- having flashbacks and are really, um, they have high neurological arousal. So people who were depressed and out of it, they did fine with microdosing. People who were having flashbacks did not do well with microdosing It made them more upset. So if they work with the therapist, say, and they're able to control the neurological arousal, it seemed like microdosing was a good tool for that group, but there's definitely some people who find it to be too anxiety provoking and it brings up too much for them. That's Mm -hmm. one
1: group. yeah,
3: But I'm a little confused here because you said the large majority of people in your survey who said they were microdosing were people who were basically doing fine and were looking mm-hmm. to just increase their performance uh, or mood or other things in general ways. Mm-hmm. But the categories you've just described, people who had severe migraines, people who had depression, that's not part of that first group. These are people who are really looking to try to treat some type of, real, you know, substantial problem they're having in their lives.
2: I would say that the in the people who are, like, well-functioning, and using microdosing to enhance their lives in that once a week group. So some of those people are depressed and they don't know it. Some of those, I think if we would survey the American population as a whole, there might be lots of people who are depressed and don't describe themselves as depressed. We didn't see a difference in depression inventory scores from people who labeled themselves as depressed and people who didn't, which is pretty significant to me. Mm -hmm. So I think that the vast majority of people are doing fine, and those people would fit in that like once a week. They're trying to use microdosing to enhance their life in some way.
3: And they're continuing to do so for months or even years at a
2: time. Exactly. And they might take a break and they might, you know, try other things or might start stacking um, as a result, but they report really positive benefits and they continue to be in touch with us and send us art and music. Like that's one of the things that Jim and I most value is people continuing to send us their stories and continuing to send us like what they got out of microdosing. So Mm -hmm. those are the positive experiences. So there's also some negative ones. Um, Like I said, there's the people with the GI problems. There's also people who um, we know from the literature that people who have taken LSD and lithium together have had seizures. So there were a number of people who didn't listen to that advice and took LSD with a number of other substances. So we kept track of who had a bad experience and what substances they were taking at the same time. So some of the people who went on to use LSD and lithium together, they did not have such a great time, and we're not exactly sure why. So Mm. that's useful information for us. Um, And some people who say they experience psychosis, yeah, people who experience psychosis can sometimes really like psychedelics. And there's a theory behind that, which is that they're able to explain their own disturbing experience by saying, I took drugs. Right, So, microdosing isn't great for those people because they can't blame the psychedelics for their psychosis because they're not taking enough. So, they didn't Mm -hmm. get a lot of relief out of that like they might be expecting to. So, people with psychosis did not like microdosing all that much.
3: Okay, so now, yeah let's turn to the big question that's been popping up in the last year, which is you yeah. now have these three published studies, right? And I, I mm-hmm. think of them, one is the one where the first author is Balash Zighetti, I think a Hungarian researcher. Mm-hmm. The second is one, I think, out of Chicago, and the third is a Dutch study. And all yes. three of these, you know, were done oftentimes with researchers who are leading figures in psychedelics research, and obviously, mm-hmm. I think, to some extent advocates of the <laughs> benefits of microdosing. And it's not clear that Many of them had it in for microdosing and some of them came away disappointed saying you know when all is said and done we're finding that it seems to be overwhelmingly placebo effect and that even you know when you have controlled double-blind studies that far more significant than whether or not people got the actual microdose as opposed to placebo is what they thought they were getting Um, so what's your take on these studies? I mean, I mean, first of all, you know, you know, and even the authors of this, you know, are kind of wishing it didn't come out this way. And so they're saying, Mm -hmm. what could be wrong with our own studies? How might we find a stronger impact and what would be the limitations here? But what's your, your sense of, of what these studies, you know, uh, what they mean? And, and did they give you pause in terms of how you were thinking about the work that you and Jim are doing?
2: Yeah, definitely. So I encountered one of these, like I was speaking at a cannabis conference with some other researchers and they had just come out with a study. And I was like, wow, that's really bizarre because if if it's true that it's just placebo, we would have needed way more people in my study to get such a strong effect, right? So you would need like huge number of people statistically to create any sort of power if it's just a placebo effect, because it could be just like a low level effect on depression. So that's possible. And I will say uh, that there's lots of depressed people. So we don't need like really high power. If if we're improving depression just a little bit, that would help people a lot. It's not like Prozac mm-hmm. is a good drug, right? Prozac is like notoriously bad. So even if we help people's depression a little bit, that would still be worth it. So that's mm-hmm. one thing. That That's what I thought of initially. Whereas most of these
3: controlled double-blind studies involve what a few dozen people or something like that.
2: Right, exactly. So like, even if we're only looking at, okay, you need like a a lot of people to show any effect on depression, okay, people are really suffering from depression and that might still be worth it for us because it's not like Mm -hmm. there's great alternatives in in the psychopharmacopia.
3: And especially since there appear to be relatively few negative consequences that have been detected so far of microdosing. And most of those negative consequences, things like, as you were saying, GI or anxiety or what have you, just go away once you stop doing it,
2: right? Exactly. And as opposed to things like discontinuation syndrome from... SSRIs, which could be really significant um, in a lifelong way. So th- mm-hmm. that was my initial thought. And then I spoke to Jim about it that evening because I was speaking at this conference and he said, oh, did you look at how many broke blind? And I said, no, mm-hmm. what's, the, what's the result? And he said, it's over 70%. So if we're looking at over 70 or 80% well, of people- Well, just explain that when you say
3: break blind, oh, that means they were cheating and looking, or it means that the dose was sufficiently perceptual that perceptual, they realized yeah. that they were taking something. And they were able to figure
2: mean. out, yeah, breaking blind means that you're able to figure out what arm of the study you're in. Uh-huh. So, if people at 80% can tell if they're in the right. placebo group or not, then we're not looking at a placebo effect. We're, it just a drug effect can include knowledge of taking the drug. Right. So, van- so randomly, you should yeah. find
3: 50% breaking blind, or 50% basically being consistent. you know, I think you ask people how,
2: how sure they are. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think they ask people how sure they are. And sometimes people say, like, I don't know. Um, and yeah, if we're looking at 70%, then I'm like, okay, well, we need to look at like this. That's not really a double blind experiment.
3: Uh, and so, but what so, are the implications? Yeah. If people figure it out, wouldn't that, with would that bias in favor of finding a
2: result? Yes, it would bias in favor of finding a result, but not necessarily a positive result. So it depends on the person's association with the substance. So if they are able to figure it out, then they'll be like, okay, I'm in the active group or I'm in the active group today, right? So they're more likely to pay more attention to their own experience. So they're more likely to have every sort of side effect. They're more likely to also have a drug effect. So it could break both ways if people know that they're in the active group and this was
3: true in all three of the big controlled double blind studies
2: I, th- I think so i'm not sure that they all asked people how often they could tell
3: and some of those studies involved giving i think both did i think i can't remember now exactly but maybe one involved giving say maybe with lsd 5 micrograms whereas another group might get 20 micrograms or something um
2: yes and the the british study the one that i'm thinking about they did this like complex thing with qr codes and envelopes where they had people like I think get on video and shuffle the blotter paper in like the envelopes of blotter paper that contain blotter paper in like a really complicated and scientific way. So mm-hmm. it's possible that just wasn't super effective as a way of, of blinding the study. So mm-hmm. people were able to figure out which of the blotter paper really had LSD on it. Mm-hmm.
3: But I saw that a couple of the guys involved in this study, uh, Van Elk, I think is one of the authors, and David Eretzel, I think in the UK is another, yes. both said, it was, it was actually a pretty good New York Times article about this a few months ago. I thought that was fairly fair-minded. And they both said, Eretzel and Van Elk said, you know, they think they're just going to stop working on microdose for now, that they're going to go back to studying macrodose, because they yes. become, even though they weren't convinced that microdose had no effect, that it was just placebo, they thought it was potentially less interesting to be working on in the future.
2: Yeah, so Eritzo is, is who I'm thinking about in the British study where it was like 70 or 80% of people broke uh, the blind there. So it's possible that macrodosing just has more potential, right? So like, it's possible that what we're seeing is a slow effect uh, with microdosing of the same thing. And so maybe, just like with ketamine, we, what we want is for people to do like a low-dose thing in a doctor's office, have a relief from depression for six months, and then do it again in six months. Right? That mm-hmm. might be a better thing than microdosing once every three days or once a week. We don't know yet, but mm-hmm. I I think looking at both of those possibilities makes a lot of sense.
3: You know, I, I saw Aritzel made an interesting comment, though, and I just wonder what your reaction to this is. Mm-hmm. He, said, he said, you probably only participate at this point in a trial in microdosing if you really have a strong belief that this might help you, and yeah. when people expect to benefit from a drug, they typically do.
2: Yes, I think that that's absolutely true. I think that mm-hmm. People don't participate in drug trials because they don't want to get better,
3: but also the element of believe, wanting to believe that this drug is helping,
2: yeah, and that's always a that's always an issue in these types of surveys and or this type of study. and there's also the issue of authority. So we know one of the placebo effects has to do with feeling like you're undergoing a medical treatment by experts. So like a placebo shot is more effective than a placebo pill, right. Mm-hmm. There, there are placebo like sham surgeries. It's like if you feel like someone really cares about you, then you're likely to get better even if it's the placebo. So when we're talking about placebo effect, we need to really figure out what is the thing we're talking about. Because if people are getting better from depression by taking like one microgram every month, like why not? Right? Like, there's right. very little, yeah, there's very little harm to that. But there is a... We don't want to fetishize the substance itself, right? We want to tell people that the power that they have to control their own depression, that has to do with the inner work that they're doing. It's not the substance itself. Let's take a break here and go to an ad.
4: Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses.
1: If you dare.
3: what's out there in the ethos, the media ethos, mm-hmm. the cultural ethos, is that this that this works. Macrodosing, or in this case, microdosing, mm. right? The more likely it is to work and the more likely and the more powerful the placebo effect, right? Because of that broader yes. media cultural context. And conversely, if a reverse narrative gets going, that we've done three controlled double blind studies and they're showing that, you know, microdosing is no more than placebo and we're actually seeing any real difference when you really can blind for all of this stuff, mm-hmm. then in fact, it has the opposite effect, that people are less likely to believe in the intervention and that therefore microdosing, you know, whether with real microdosing or the placebo effect of microdosing, therefore diminishes. And I wonder if it's possible to track that because a lot of these three studies, I think the controlled double lines have just come out Mm -hmm. in the last year and a half or so. And so a lot, whereas the coverage of the issue a couple of years ago was much more upbeat and positive. You know, you had Mm -hmm. Islet Waldman's book coming out a really good day in which she talks about how microdosing, you know, saved her life, saved her marriage, you know, Mm -hmm. all of that. And so, you know, so you have all of this positive stuff. And now when you Google microdosing, you know, you know, no effect, no better than placebo is likely to pop up when you do any kind of research. Is there any way you think you'll be been to pick this up in your surveys of people having less faith in it and therefore getting less benefit?
2: It's an interesting question, especially if you think about like the contemporary landscape around depression treatment in general. Because if you would Google, say SSRI. Um, I'm not sure how much you would see about placebo, but we know a huge part of what's happening when people take SSRIs and have a benefit there is placebo. Mm-hmm. And that has to do with like medical authority as well, because that's a mainstream treatment. Though so it might be less effective than than microdosing. So I don't know how we'll be able to sort that out. I'm, I'm not super worried about it because it's like, okay, I'm not a psychedelics advocate. So if microdosing isn't helping people, then don't do it. And if it is helping people, then let's do it. But in order to figure this out, we're going to have to do double blinds in a way that makes more sense. And what we're looking at right now is some like really intense medical stuff. So when you do surveys of thousands and thousands of people who have a variety of different medical conditions and just ask them what happens, this isn't research. This is just search. We just found out. So there's this idea of... um, of harking or people call p-hacking. So harking means hypothesis after results known, right? So mm-hmm. that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about like, we, uh, we surveyed like 18,000 people who are microdosing. And then some of the people are like, oh, I'm a vet and my phantom limb syndrome is getting better. And so mm-hmm. like that might be random, right? But we weren't looking for it. And then we can design a follow-up. So we're working with uh, the VA on not Phantom limb specifically, but people who have paralysis who started when they were microdosing getting twitches in their paralyzed limb. Mm-hmm. We don't know why that occurs. Right. But we see that pretty consistently. So, like, that's an interesting effect. And um, so, I don't think it, in terms of the medical, I don't think it's just placebo because we're seeing a bunch of weird stuff that's consistent with itself.
3: Right, right. You also mentioned things like people who had, you know, suffering terrible pain from shingles, finding that significantly um, alleviated, right? Or that people who had stuttered (laughs) finding, um, you know, they were finding real improvements. And Uh, the
2: tinnitus people. Yeah. So we're looking at what people call the garbage pail diagnosis, which is not meant in any sort of derogatory way. There's a, a set of diagnoses. <laughs> yeah, of, a garbage yeah.
3: pail diagnosis not meant in any sort of derogatory yeah, way. Yeah, exactly. I want to be careful. Maybe they carefully. should come up with a different yeah. phrase for it then. Yeah, but go ahead. Well, it's, yeah. Exactly.
2: So it's these stigmatized conditions um, and people who get sort of um shifted to the back of the line. So things like fibromyalgia, toxic mold sensitivity, um,
1: mm-hmm.
2: uh, chronic fatigue syndrome. So there's these comorbid conditions that we don't understand very well. Um, so what I mean by comorbid is that these people will be diagnosed with more than one of them. And so it's not clear what, what the correct diagnosis is. It's probably stuff we don't understand that well medically. So we're doing a survey of those people with, with those set of syndromes in particular, because we don't know what's going on, but they're pretty desperate and mm-hmm. they're seeing some effect from microdosing. So that's one group. Um, and those people are, are really suffering and doctors aren't listening to them. There's the people with Paralysis and there's the people with traumatic brain injury, and then there's the people with dementia and Alzheimer's. And so those are some really important groups. For the headache sufferers, we kind of know what's happening because of sumatriptan because because migraines, we don't know exactly what causes migraines, but we do know that one of the most effective treatments is on the market is something that's related to LSD. So it's not really surprising to us that low doses of LSD would also alleviate migraines because sumatriptan Mm -hmm. is related to LSD. Um, and cluster headache's the same. So we're looking at fast-tracking for those two conditions for cluster headache and migraine sufferers. But for depression, like, then we get into this, like, what if it's a placebo effect thing? And so I'm, I am very curious about, like, how this is going to turn out. How do we distinguish what is a placebo when we're talking about depression in the first place?
3: You know, I, I have to tell you, uh, Sylvia, in reading about all of the stuff in microdosing, it got me mm-hmm. thinking a fair bit about the whole phenomenon with CBD. Right, mm-hmm. so we know from the medical research that CBD actually can have very significant therapeutic effects for particular yes. conditions, and that there's fascinating research going on about this. But meanwhile, there's been a multi-billion-dollar industry that has emerged that's largely unregulated, with people selling CBD in drinks, and food, and mm-hmm. lotions, and lozenges, and uh, you name it. And and virtually none of these are backed by any types of controlled double-blind studies. Right, you know, this will heal your arthritis. Mm-hmm. This will make you feel better. All this sort yeah. of stuff, and and you know, and, and in a way, I think many of the people in the CBD industry—not all, but most of them—may prefer that that these studies don't happen because they're doing oh, pretty sure. well based upon all the hype around CBD. And I'm yeah. thinking, you know, once again with microdosing, there is clearly something happening and going on there. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's actually, you know, it, it, to the extent that the hype is out there, the positive stuff, and to the extent that there's a really powerful placebo effect, whether or not the actual substance is making a difference, this is potentially an industry worth billions and billions and billions of dollars. Yes. And when we yep. think about, you know, all of the way in which, you know, Compass, Atai, the for-profit companies mm-hmm. are all coming into the psychedelics thing. You know, one of the points that people make is that for a lot of these studies, this is not something with macrodosing that you know, has to be done therapeutically, you know, day after day, week after week, month after month. Sometimes it's just doing one trip or five trips yep. or 10 trips or periodic trips where there's not a big profit upside on that, right? Where the profit's going to come in creating the setting and the cycle therapists and all that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to microdosing, where people are potentially doing something three days a week and maybe not just for a month, but maybe over sustained periods of time or doing it this month, taking a break another month, it taught that there you have a market of people consuming Mm -hmm. a psychedelic substance in very low doses where the where the level of potency is crucially important. So you want Mm -hmm. this to be a legally regulated industry because people want to know whether they're getting five micrograms or eight 8 micrograms or twelve micrograms or twenty right, micrograms, and that they're not, not getting the something thing. else. Exactly, yeah. both both yeah. For the, both for the purity and also for the potency stuff. So mm-hmm. it seems to me that in the psychedelics, the, the profit-driven side of the psychedelics renaissance has a huge interest in there being something to this microdosing. And I, as you step back, how do you think about the way in which the microdosing uh, plays out in this ever-growing capitalist market? Of psychedelics,
2: sure. Yeah, I've got lots of negative things to say about capitalism,
3: <laughs> but specifically about the. I'm really curious about this microdosing piece of it. Essentially, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, I've had various, you know, guests talk about what are the consequences of all the for-profit investment and how most of the money driving the research is for-profit and they're paying and giving money mm-hmm. to university programs. But on the microdosing thing, it seems like a particularly acute issue
2: because uh, it's something that could be ongoing for profit. You mean?
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And because yeah. people so, are going to consume, you know, not just, you know, th- three doses once or three doses a year. It, they're potentially going to be consuming 50 or 100 doses a year and maybe for long periods of time.
2: Yeah, absolutely. The FDA became really interested when we started saying like, okay, the doses that we're looking at for a medical effect, even if you would give people like film, right, like, a, like a strips of LSD like once a week. And they would combine all of them for the month like when we start looking at doses that people could never get high on then the fda is like oh now we're interested i mean they're worried about things like people abusing and diverting their doses right Mm -hmm. so we are looking at a huge there's a huge profit opportunity here for capitalists um and like i know personally as a researcher my name was included in a company that I was not affiliated with and was being used to sell something or to propose selling something. I think that the encroach of capitalism is a huge, huge problem here. And I think that what we did together as a psychedelics community to try to control that in certain ways was really positive. So we signed an ethical pledge all together. We worked on that. And that included things like all the research needs to be open and upfront. When Compass took anti-competitive action, I got on the phone and started calling pharmaceutical companies in Canada and got research grade l s d for other survey for other studies. so like we need to work together to prevent the encroach of capitalism, but in the realistically, what are the profit motives? So if people are looking at an indication for depression, that's a huge market. That's what motivates these studies so in order to take a drug to market that that's a a huge huge investment of time and money. And because LSD is not under patent, you would need a sponsor to do that. So that's when you look at things like Compass patenting one version of LSD or psilocybin and then trying to take that to market. But if we were to use different statistical tools and pool research and pool studies in a different way, then we could start to not need the same type of pharmaceutical sponsors for indications. The other thing is that if people were able to say, okay, maybe it's the placebo, but I'm going to take my health into my own hands right now. I'm going to try to talk to my psychedelics community, figure out my own microdosing, figure out a stack that works for me. That reduces the power that we give to these pharmaceutical companies who are going to try to sell LSD as a treatment for depression. So if people are able to rely more on their own communities and themselves, then there's less of a profit motive. But this is a really, really hard issue. I think people need to get together and work on this together.
3: You know, I'm normally an advocate that, you know, legalization, legal regulation is the right way to go. Yet I can also point to counterexamples where having a decriminalized situation can actually be the preferable one, although it's hard to sustain that for a long period of time. Mm-hmm. And one can imagine a world in which you have microdosing and a world where no, no for-profit legal company like P- Compass has succeeded in proving that microdosing works or has succeeded in disproving and showing that it doesn't work that allowing that to happen, I mean, you don't have the risk in the psychedelics like you have, for example, with opioids, right? With the fentanyl market now, we're Mm -hmm. 100,000 dead, you know, 70% of them because of an adulterated drug supply involving fentanyl. That's not the risk you have with psychedelics. And then, so I'm thinking that to the extent that this actually stays...
2: We might still have a risk of adulteration though, right?
3: You still have a risk, but it's a fairly minimal risk. We're not necessarily seeing fatalities.
2: Well, Taking a step back to the adulteration question. So it's true that we're not seeing fatalities, but when we see um, rich celebrities who are dying um, from fentanyl, from taking ketamine, we know that there's fentanyl in everything, right? And because of the, the current supply chain management issues in the carceral state, it makes most sense for drug smugglers to try to get as much across in as little package as they can, which means fentanyl. So fentanyl might be in everything really soon, and I wouldn't say that it's necessarily safe. We recommend that everyone test their substances. You can buy testing kits on Amazon, (laughs) test your substances.
3: No, I actually just saw a report in the papers uh, recently, we are talking about early June here, of three kids dying of a fentanyl overdose where they thought they were getting MDMA. So there's been a lot of stories that the cops have been putting out there about fentanyl adulteration, especially involving cannabis, sometimes other drugs that have proven uh, proven to be false. But the fact is, you know, there's both. But whether it's drug dealers making mistakes, I mean, there's not much reason to see why they'd have an incentive to put it. You know, nobody no, can really no, figure no. out why there's fentanyl in the stimulant drugs, for example, in cocaine, or especially why there's an MDMA or things like this.
2: I think it that people who are packaging drugs aren't working under lab conditions. So that, they're, that's they're one just, good, that's one strong hypothesis
3: of what's going yeah. on there. Yeah.
2: So, so that's one aspect of things. So let's talk about the greatest good for the largest number of people. So what I'm suggesting that people do, like what I've suggested over these years, is that people get in touch with like some group in their community. They connect with those people. They perhaps source substances and knowledge through that. It's like, that's a lot of privilege, right? That's a lot of safety. There's, that's not available to most people. So people who are people of color, people who are not connected to a community because of neurodivergence or geographic distance. So it's not possible to do what I've suggested. It's not possible to be safe in the same ways. And I disagree with Michael Pollan that the psychedelics community is white. I think that that ignores the contributions of people of color and indigenous people who have been part of our community all along. But I do think that if you're not connected to the psychedelics community, how are you possibly going to source a microdose? So it's becoming more and more possible, but you would have to be pretty savvy to like, go online and order a mushrooms kit and grow your own mushrooms. Like That, that requires a lot of information um, and a lot of uh, expertise. And because of the carceral state, we would expect there to be more police attention on people who are already in stigmatized groups. So those are the people who are going to get punished. Legal regulation and some capitalist encroachment might be the way to get this to the largest number of people. Like, let's imagine someone who is disabled by their depression, right? Someone with serious and persistent mental illness that isn't well controlled with medication, which is why they want to to microdose. So they're not going to be able to source things and do things the way that we're suggesting.
3: They may not be able to source things in any area, though. I mean, yeah, it's exactly. not clear that being obliged to go on the internet is going to be the most challenging of, of the opportunities to try to find ways to deal with their depression
2: exactly so if if there was a drug that their their doctor could give them that might be something that they're able to do but definitely if we're talking about increased access that would mean working within the system
1: let
3: me move to one last area here. You are yourself a psychotherapist. And Mm -hmm. I'm curious about, to the extent you can talk openly about this, what's your own experience in psychotherapy and especially in helping people who are dealing with trauma? And more broadly, what do you encounter in the broader psychotherapeutic community, either in terms of stigmatization or in terms of curiosity? What's your own sense about where this is right now?
2: So yeah, I work as a psychotherapist right now. I work with people who are pretty um, pretty ill. I get a little bit bored by people who are too healthy. So <laughs> I like working with people who have with complex trauma in, in pretty intense environments. But I work with a, an integrated team and I speak uh, about psychedelics uh, within the larger psychotherapeutic community. So one of the most common questions that I get is whether or not someone who's microdosing can participate usefully in therapy. It's like, do they have to... S- to microdose and then go to therapy or can they microdose as part of therapy? Like will they be too out of it to be able to participate usefully in therapy? So just that question alone indicates to me that psychotherapists do not know what's going on. <laughs> because of course people who are microdosing can participate usefully in therapy, right? Like it, there's no reason to assume that they shouldn't be able to, but because there's there's not a lot of information that's out there sometimes therapists think, oh, I should tell this person never microdose on the days that you're going to see me. And maybe you should just microdose and see if that treats the depression and then come to therapy. So I'm able to reassure therapists that no, you're able to treat people with uh, with depression and with anxiety, whatever, with trauma as they're microdosing. And what we see is an increase in positive benefits. So people are able to use therapy to better effect. I'd recommend the work of uh, Heather Hargraves in Canada. Um, she does uh, neurobiofeedback with people, and what she sees with microdosing is that people's brainwaves are able to adapt much more quickly as they microdose. So that's one aspect of things. There's a lot, a lot of stigma in the medical community about psychedelics use. There's this perception that that we're just giving people permission to use drugs. So I do a lot of work with medical professionals explaining the basic harm reduction stuff, like that people are sort sure of gonna do drugs no matter what, and and we better use this to good effect.
3: But I'm also curious about here is a lot of attention I think is focused on macro dosing. And the mm-hmm. question is when it comes to microdosing, is the micro dosing receiving even a tiny part of the attention in the world of clinical psychology or psychiatry? Or is yes. it still just a very small number of people interested in the microdosing element of, you know, microdosing-assisted psychotherapy?
2: So I think that psychiatrists are much more open to microdosing than macrodosing. So for them, it feels a lot safer, right? Like the p- person's still gonna feel connected to reality. If they wanna try it, they can try it. So I think psychiatrists are much more open to microdosing than macrodosing. I still encounter psychiatrists who think that psychedelics use is um, psychotomimetic, that w- what we're doing mm-hmm. is mimicking the psychotic state in an individual. So there's a lot of education that still needs to happen around that issue. I will say that like a lot of people with psychotic conditions are very interested in both microdosing and macrodosing, and that that's a, a large struggle for clinicians. Mm-hmm. I do want to say one other thing that we haven't brought out, which is that, so I was in Prague speaking at a psychedelics conference and I walk into this uh, room uh, where people are talking about Ibogaine. I I didn't know anything about Ibogaine when I walked into the room. I just had heard that it's pronounced Ibogaine. So I walk in, there's all these people from Africa who start hugging me. And I was like, I don't get what's going on here. And they were like, your research in microdosing um, validates our traditional practice of using Ibogaine because they uh, and this is the Buiti people of Gabon have been using Ibigain to treat a number of conditions, most importantly, addiction, And they have microdosing as part of their traditional practice. So they use both macrodoses and microdoses. So uh-huh. when we had created the psychedelics ethics code, um I had all these calls with different people. And I remember this one call that I had with um, people from the Santo Dime Church, the ayahuasca uh, Church. And I said something like, "Are there any uh, words that anything that needs to be said here that hasn't been said before we end the call?" And they said, "Yeah, we need to bring out the voice of the grandfather vine." And I said, "Great. How do we do that?" Um, so then they taught us all a song. So I'm not going to teach you the song. All of these, there's lots of these songs on on YouTube and other places. But I think part of having psychedelics use in a A more open way means validating the voices of these traditional practices and people who have different exposure, different experiences than our own, and allowing those voices to come forward to learning those songs and and learning what that can give us. And I think that that presents a a model of depression treatment or psychedelics use that isn't just about the substance, it's about the entire context of, of
3: it. So, Sophia, is there anything else we've left out here?
2: Sure. I want to say something that's really important, which is that we can't measure the amount of any given neurotransmitter in a living being's brain. When we look at mouse studies, if we're looking at how much serotonin a mouse has in its brain, we kill the mouse and then we autopsy the brain in in slices. So when we talk about, oh, there's been this increase in this chemical, this increase in that chemical, or these are the parts of the brain that light up, that's one way of looking at it. But we need to validate that with people's experiences. So sure, our brain lights up and what you were talking about before is an increase in connectivity between different parts of the brain. But what is the lived experience of that? So if people are saying, oh, I'm more creative, and we also see increased blood flow between different halves of the brain, that makes a lot of sense to me. But I don't think we should Look at it as it's just a chemical that's occurring in the brain.
3: Okay, Sylvia. I mean, I really enjoyed our conversation. So thank, thank you so much. much for having this conversation with me on psychoactive and best of luck with your future research as well as with your future, uh, you know, therapy efforts involving or not involving these substances. Thank
2: you so yeah. much. Yeah, I've worked in harm reduction in uh, New York City and San Francisco for a long time, and I've really respected the work of Drug Policy Alliance. So I'm, oh, I'm very happy to be here. Yeah.
3: Oh, fantastic. Well, thanks so much. If you're enjoying Psychoactive, please tell your friends about it. Or you can write us a review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your own stories, comments, and ideas, then leave us a message at 1-833-779-2460. That's 833-Psycho-0. Or you can email us at psychoactive at protozoa.com or find me on Twitter at Ethan Nadelman. You can also find contact information in our show notes. Psychoactive is a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. It's hosted by me, Ethan Nadelman. It's produced by Noam Osband and Josh Thane. The executive producers are Dylan Golden, Ari Handel, Elizabeth Giesis and Darren Aronofsky from Protozoa Pictures, Alex Williams and Matt Frederick from iHeartRadio, and me, Ethan Nadelman. Our music is by Ari Belusian. And a special thanks to Avivit Bar-Yosef, Bianca Grimshaw, and Robert Beebe. Next week, we'll have a special episode of Psychoactive. It's when I invite my dear friend, Julie Holland, to co-host Psychoactive and answer questions with me from you, the listeners.
4: For nine years, every Saturday night and Sunday night, I was the doctor in charge of the psychiatric emergency room at Bellevue Hospital, and I was in charge of a, like a 15 to 16-hour overnight shift. And far and away, the substances that wreak the most havoc in, in the psychiatric patients that I saw in Bellevue, number one, alcohol, no question, and number two, cocaine.
3: Subscribe to Psychoactive Now
1: so you don't miss
4: it. From BBC Radio 4,
1: Britain's biggest paranormal podcast.
4: work. Zumo Play.